Uh, sometimes I'll prepare a prayer or scripture beforehand to just because I think it's a good idea, and every once in a while the Lord will seem to lead me in a direction that's specific to someone that is in need today, and so I have a psalm I want to read. It's Psalm 130, and I, I think that the idea here is is that if you feel as if you are in a self-inflicted uh, pit, if you feel like you're in a pit that you dug for yourself, uh, whether that be through a lifelong neglect of a uh, habit that you needed to procure, maybe something as simple as self-discipline, maybe something much more complicated, but you feel this morning that you're in a pit that you dug yourself of Psalm 130. I think the Lord wants me to read that to you this morning. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Let me pray. O great God, that would care so much not only to save your people from their sins, but also to speak to them regularly words of assurance and care, reminding them of the lavishness of your grace for all who are in Christ. Lord, we pray to you this morning. We pray, God, for those who feel as though they're in a pit dug by their own sin, by their own neglect, uh, by their own laziness, whatever it is, God. We pray for them that you would help them to see that, yeah, the sin's there. Yep, it's, it's a problem. The pit's a real pit. But, oh, God, your salvation is lavish and much deeper than any grave we could dig for ourselves. And we praise you, Lord, that you're a God not only that offers salvation, but a God who entered the pit with us. A God who will help us. A God who will lift us. Lord, please encourage the hearts of those who are discouraged this morning. And as we open your word, would you open our hearts to it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry. And if you would, you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Craig, completely different seating. I love it. I love it. Throwing me off. This week, we'll continue to think about the Lord's table. Uh, we've been looking at some classic texts related to communion for the past few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Luke 22, where Jesus initiates the Lord's table in the upper room with his disciples. And then we examined the Passover text in Exodus and discussed in similar, some ways in which the Passover can help us to see the gospel more clearly. And as we've done all of this, we've basically got this idea that in all of these things, the Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in all of these various providences and in, in ceremonies and circumstances and time that they're at work in all of this to show and demonstrate their kindness and grace to, uh, to us. Um, I think it would be good to dig a little deeper into that whole idea because it's honestly, without any notes, 
I could talk about this idea for, for, for a couple hours at least. I mean, really, like, there's just, just this incredible depth to this idea. And what this idea in particular is the way that God speaks through the stuff and circumstances that he has created. Okay, and this is a really crazy thing. So I think sometimes we imagine that Jesus is like Bear Grylls and he has sort of descended to the earth, right? He's dropped into the earth as a survivalist and he is looking around at all the resources that are here on the earth and he's sort of refashioning them to describe the truths that he wants to describe. So for instance, in Matthew 18, Jesus wants to talk about childlike faith. Well, he wants to talk about simple faith. And it's easy for us to envision Jesus thinking, okay, how am I going to teach these guys about faith? And he sees a kid and he's like, aha, I'll adapt this kid into my teaching and I'll use this kid as an illustration to, to talk about the kind of faith that I think people should have. So that's the kind of way we tend to think about Jesus teaching, right? And because that's what good teachers do. And we would assume that Jesus is a good teacher, so he would do the same thing. Uh, but that's not, exa- that's not at all the way that Jesus uses stuff and circumstances to teach us. Jesus doesn't drop down into stuff and circumstances of the earth and grab stuff and say, uh, the kingdom's kind of like this, as if he'd never thought about the connection between the mustard seed and the kingdom and so on and so forth. It's exactly the opposite. So, so what is actually happening in those instances is not that Jesus is looking around for a kid or something to illustrate faith, but that that kid was created to be in that moment in advance so that that child could illustrate and demonstrate the nature of faith. And it's bigger than that. That, that. Not only is that child been knit together in his mother's womb to be in that moment so that Jesus could demonstrate or talk about faith, but children, the category, children are created to teach us something about faith. It's not as if Jesus grabs childhood and says, faith is kind of like childhood. Or it's not as if Jesus grabs fatherhood and says, God is sort of like a father. No, he's saying fathers are sort of like God. That's the idea is that these, these things, these, these circumstances, these created things have been created, filled with meaning already. And that child had that meaning well before he was born. That child was destined to be in that moment a, t- a teaching tool, right? And it was way before he ever came into existence that he was meant to be that. And then at one moment, through Jesus' work, that child, we, we see this deeper meaning. We see this deeper meaning behind this child's existence. And that's what's happening in the Lord's table. Grapes and grain were always created with the intention of revealing body and blood. So that's not Jesus grabbing onto something that's like a loaf of bread is kind of like body and saying like, here, this is my body. Or, or grapes saying, here, this is like my blood. No, before they were ever created, before the genomic profile of a grape or a, 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 a grain of wheat ever existed, God intended that those things, in their ultimate meaning, reveal Jesus. So that 
the creation itself has been embedded with Christological, Jesus-centered meaning forever, and that all things have been. So that when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he isn't just grabbing some materials and refashioning them to show deep things. No, those materials, grapes and grain, always had at their deepest level of meaning the purpose of showing Christ to the world, the purpose of preaching the gospel. And that's really interesting because that tells us a lot about what we're supposed to do when we practice the Lord's table. Uh, think of it this way. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains is his. So when we see anything, whether it's stuff or circumstances or even emotions, if we really had the faith, if, if, if we really saw things the way we we're supposed to see them, we would be able to see how everything, everything points to Jesus in one way or another. That's, that's the idea behind the Lord's table in some respects. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul is addressing the Corinthian error of celebrating the Lord's Supper the wrong way. And he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that when the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself first, examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So today we're going to focus mostly on this idea of discernment. As he says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discernment is key to the Christian life. Actually, discernment is the essential function for which humans were created. We were created to echo God's actions in the first few chapters of Genesis where he names things good, where he separates one thing from another, where he sorts it all out, and he appraises it. When it says, let us make man in our own image, and then we see what God had been doing all along, we get some idea of what it means to be in God's image. To be in God's image means to be a discerner. It means to sort things out, to decide what's good, to decide what's better, to decide what's best, to decide what's bad. And honestly, if you think about it, all of the fear of missing out and all of the tensions related to like saying yes to this and no to that and why we struggle with indecision so greatly, it's really rooted in a lack of wisdom and a lack of discernment. And, and it's really rooted in this kind of failure to model what God himself so clearly models. God created us to be discerning people. That's actually what worship is. Worship is the act of saying what? It's the act of ascribing value. It's the act of saying, God, you are most worthy. Which means we've walked through the general store of creation and we put price tags on stuff. And we've been like, well, you know, families are good. 
families are better than dogs, right? Dogs are good, but families are better. And, and, and love is better than whatever. And, and we go through the general story of creation, because why, why do we do this? Because we're priests. Like, this is, this is what God created, a nation of priests. What do priests do? They, dis, they discern between clean and unclean, between good, bad, and ugly, right? Like, that's what a priest does. When, when, when God sets Israel on the trajectory of being a nation of priests, he's essentially saying, I'm going to bring you back into the image for which I originally created you, to be discerning people. That, that Israel's going to be the unique people in all the nation who actually know their left hand from their right hand, as Jonah references. Right? So Israel's going to be a discerning people. God's people are going to be a discerning people. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests, to have discernment. So Hebrews 5.14, well, 5.13 and 14 the writer says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And by the way, the, the next step in discernment is to separate good from good. To, to sort out good opportunities and decide which one is the most important and which one's the most actionable. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Philippians 1.9 uh, of discernment says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So discernment is a key duty. I think it's the essential duty of human existence. I think it's the basic job we have is to walk through this world as priests of the Most High God, deciding what is good and what is better and what isn't any good and why. I think that's the essential function that Adam had when he was called to name the animals was a, was a taxonomy, a, a decision-making, discernment-based idea of figure out what these things are and how they rank even. And that's certainly what God calls Israel to do in their history. It's a whole discernment-based religion, like clean and unclean and so on and so forth. So discernment, I think, is essential to the Christian life. I think that's actually what it means to be a human being. And we are in desperate need of re of elevating, of discerning the need for discernment in our culture. Something very interesting's happened. We've actually thrown away discernment in some of the most critical areas for which discernment is necessary. For instance, in the sexual realm. We've really decided like to discern a sexual practice as better than another is a terrible thing, right? It's a terrible thing. So, well, that's not true. I mean, it's pretty important, actually, because there's a bunch of stuff you can do that'll like not work out well for you, right? Uh, discernment's pretty important when it comes to certain body parts, like that are prone to infection and whatnot. Like discernment's a big deal. So, but what we've done is we've said like. We can't discern these most essential areas of humanity. So what do we do with all of our built-in discernment energy that we're not using? 
Like, because we're built to discern. What do we do with all this discernment energy? Well, I know. Let's make sure our coffee beans are fairly traded. Right? Like, so, so, like, let's not worry about aberrant sexual practices that can actually hurt people, but let's make sure that we are, we are ethically sourcing our coffee beans. Right? So, so we see that the impulse for discernment doesn't go away. We just got to do something new with it. But like, no matter how unethically your coffee beans are sourced, they will never give you gonorrhea. So like, so like it's a stupid choice. It's a stupid choice to worry about that. There are other things that are more important to be discerned. The Lord's table, believe it or not, is both about discernment and about Christ's freedom that he brings to us who are so terrible at discernment. So there are three ideas built into the text we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, and that's this. The physical elements, so we're talking about created stuff, they represent eternal truth. Okay, so that's the first idea. These things that you're going to hold in your hand in a minute, a cup and a piece of bread, they represent something really deep and eternal. So that's truth number one. Truth number two, if you discern that rightly, you'll be blessed. So if you see the meaning in the cup and the bread, if you discern it rightly, you'll be blessed. Truth number three, if you fail to discern it, if you fail to discern rightly, you'll be cursed. All right, so there's spiritual meaning in the cup and the bread. There's spiritual meaning in the cup and the bread. When you hold this in your hands, what, what, what uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine wants you to do is discern this. To see this as, yes, some bread. And did I get juice? Oh, I got juice. Darn it. Uh, I was hoping I got wine. Uh, uh, to discern this as, as, okay, this is grain coming from the ground, and this is, this is juice. To discern this as like physical stuff, but then to kick in your spiritual discernment and say, this stuff means something more than just the physical thing that I have in my hand. Right? That's, that's the whole idea behind communion. It's to take something that's physical and spe- see the spiritual truth behind it. So the problem is, is that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's addressing a group of people who weren't doing that. They weren't, they weren't discerning the body or the cup. In verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and and eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Next week, we'll talk about all the community and horizontal features related to this. But for now, let's just stick to this basic idea. What's the problem here? Why is Paul addressing this? They're not discerning the deeper meaning behind this meal. 
they're treating it like any other meal. Actually, that's not true. Because there's a certain Christian way to eat, and they're not even doing that. This is like full-on Caligula. You know, this is, they're going full-on hedonistic, toga-optional. Like, it's like rough, rough here, you know. They're not just like, they're not just like treating the Lord's table like any other meal. They're treating it like something worse than any other meal. They're failing to discern. And, and Paul is dealing with that knuckleheadedness, that obtuseness. That's like, you have something physical in your hands. And yes, you're hungry. And yes, this is food. And yes, you're thirsty. And yes, this is drink. But there's something more going on here beyond the mere physicalities of the substances and your appetites. And you're not discerning it. That's the whole issue here. Now, sometimes you'll hear that this, is, uh, this text reference to the let us examine ourselves. And I think sometimes it can be used to be a little too introspective and make us determine whether we are worthy to participate in a table which, in fact, celebrates the fact that we aren't worthy, but that he is. We'll address that a little bit this week and more next week. But what's really happening, it's just important to remember the context, what's really happening that Paul's dealing with is you've got a situation that's, I was trying to think of how to like describe this culturally in culturally relevant terms. So, so Black Friday in Walmart, you know, with Golden Corral. Combine those two images, and that's sort of what's happening here. Like it's this really terrible thing. People are just being terrible in, in multiple levels, which is why in verse 27, Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The idea here is Paul wants people to get a hold of themselves, but not to examine themselves in the sense of examine whether there's any trace of sin inside of you, but to examine yourself to see whether you are actually looking at Christ as you participate in the Lord's table. This isn't like stare deep within and determine whether or not you're worthy because you aren't. And if you think you're worthy, you're not, right? This is one of those moments where it's sort of like take a moment, take a breath. Do you know what this is? Do you really know what this is? Are you aware of what you're celebrating? Or is this just some kind of rote thing that you participate in? Maybe even out of some cultural pressure, like you don't want to be the only one who isn't. No one would ever notice, by the way. People aren't looking around to see who's not partaking in the Lord's table. But, but Paul's really just saying, like, you've got to discern the moment. You've got to look through these physical elements and get to the heart of what's going on. And obviously, the Lord's table represents what? It represents the gospel. It represents Jesus offering himself for us. But it also represents a whole new way to live. How does it represent a whole new way, of, way to live? Well, what does the gospel save us from? What, let's, what is sin? Well, sin breaks the connection between the creator and the creation, right? That's what sin does. Sin distorts the connection between the creator and the creation. You can name any sin you would like right now, and it will involve somehow you taking something that God created and you using it for whatever you want to use it for 
rather than using it in faith and obedience to the Lord. It's like anything, like any possible sin you can think of comes down to you taking something God created and not discerning the ultimate reason God created it and instead using it the way you want to use it. So that's, that's theft, right? So God filled this world full of cool things and human beings use those cool things to get their own kicks and not to glorify and obey God. We're thankless, discerning, no discernment thieves, right? It's just, I'm taking your stuff, I'm using it the way I want to use it. And we can talk about words. We do that with words. We do that with our work. We certainly do that with all of our pleasures and all of our appetites. This is a big deal. This is all we do. This is what sin is. God has filled this world with stuff, and we fail to discern the deeper meaning of the stuff. I was thinking about different ways to think about that. And I'm not saying here, I'm going to list three different kinds of ways that we do that, but I think we do all three, maybe all the time. So I'm not saying like there's one of three. I think it's way worse than I could possibly describe. But one of the ways we sin is we disconnect the deeper meaning. Um, uh, culturally, right now, we're at this moment where we're like, where we want to say sex is just sex. And we want to disconnect it from any deeper meaning, right? Like that's kind of our, our new thing these days is we want this just to be its own thing. It has no moral meaning. It has no moral implications. We just disconnect this pleasure from all spiritual weight and meaning. So one of the ways we sin is we find a pleasure that God has created or a thing that God has created and we just do our best to strip it of all spiritual meaning altogether. Uh, you, you might do that with food. You know, Food is just food. There is no spiritual meaning behind any of it. It's just stuff, and I'm just going to eat it because I want to. Um, so there are things that you interact with on a daily basis that you are trying your best to tell yourself have no moral meaning, and they're just things. And you do that so that you can do what you want with them. So that's one way. We disconnect the deeper meanings of things. Uh, another way is we distort the deeper meanings of things. So, so uh, you've got a created thing, and it has a deeper meaning, but, but, but you make it about you instead. So marriage, like marriage is, is marriage for your happiness primarily? Is that the main, is that the main goal? Well, of course not. Like marriage is to glorify Jesus and to celebrate the gospel but you'll distort the deeper meaning of marriage to make it mostly about whether you're happy. All right? So there is, you're, you're acknowledging that your thing has a deeper meaning. It's your happiness. But, but it's just not the right deeper meaning. Um, or maybe you'll diminish the deeper meaning. Because the truth is, is that everything has multiple meanings. Everything has multiple deeper meanings. Nothing is just, just in and of itself, by itself. Like that cup and that bread can satisfy my hunger and thirst. I mean, not in that portion, but, but like they can satisfy my hunger and thirst. And that is a deeper meaning, but it's not the deepest meaning, right? And so one of the things we see in scripture, and this is crazy, and we don't even know how this works. We just, we just see that God says it, is that everything in the universe 
if you were to go through all of its deeper meanings and you were to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to its ultimate meaning, that everything in the universe is meant to tell you that God is good. It's meant to tell you that Jesus is good. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. This is Jesus we're talking about. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So everything, every kind of pleasure, every bit of stuff that I could come up with, we don't always see how it works. Like, I don't know, I don't know why mosquitoes glorify Jesus. I don't. But, but, but the Bible says that one day uh, we will see plainly. We will see clearly even as we are now clearly seen. And we will understand how everything relates to Jesus. Now imagine, this is pretty cool, imagine living in a universe full of pleasure, like even better than it is now, but that you intuitively knew how that thing glorified Jesus. And you just felt it. So when you engaged in whatever pleasure you want to talk about, you just felt as the truest thing about that pleasure that you're experiencing is that Jesus is good. Can you imagine living that way forever? That's what, that's what the new heavens and the new earth are. It's, it's this rich, created world where every single thing, and I'm talking about pleasures, but I mean everything, every created thing has been fully unveiled to show Jesus. So that's why I always say eternity is this place where all pleasures are godly and all godliness is pleasurable because there is no more questioning about like the deeper meaning on everything. Everything is fully, so that the image is the new heavens and the new earth as just, as just like together. There's no more separation. The two are just together. The spiritual, the physical are together, even as Christ himself is together in that sense. So, that's the whole idea behind sin, right? Sin disconnects this complete, perfect harmony between the physical created world and the spiritual invisible world that is before it and over it, and sin distorts it. So when you lie, for instance, what's going on? What do you tell yourself? Well, you tell yourself that words are just words. Maybe that's, that's what's going on. You tell yourself words are just words. Well, what's going on there is you're trying to disconnect any deeper meaning from something that's created, which are words. Or you might say, words exist to serve me and my happiness, in which case you're just distorting the deeper meaning behind these created things like words. And this is what we do with all things. When you hoard money, you tell yourself what? Well, you certainly don't tell yourself that money is just money and that it has no deeper meaning, because if you thought that, you wouldn't hoard it. But somehow there's a breakdown between the creation and the creator, and you're worshiping this gift more than the giver. That's what sin is. Sin is this constant breaking, screwing up, inverting of the creation and the creator. Now, what happens when we sin that way? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, when they get this wrong, they're judged. 
when they, when they get when they fail to discern this, they experience judgment. So in verse twenty eight of uh, of First Corinthians eleven, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So you've got this Black Friday Golden Crow thing going on instead of the Lord's table. Massive, low discernment, just, just terrible behavior. And because they're failing to discern the spiritual realities behind this physical thing, they're suffering what you can only describe as judgment or a curse. They're, they're suffering consequences of their failure to discern. Well, that just happens to be a microcosm of what the Bible teaches in general about this problem. Is that when we get the creator-creation thing screwed up, we suffer. So, for instance, First Corinthians, or Romans 1, verse 18. And this isn't just talking about the Lord's table. Here Paul's talking about creation itself. But it's the same problem, right? Failure to discern. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this is later on, it says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served creation over creator who's forever blessed. So this is the problem that we see in Romans 1 with all sin. And that is, is that you and I have been walking through a world thick with created goodness. But because sin is deep within our hearts, we fail to acknowledge God's goodness in all of this created stuff that we experience and enjoy. And the more we do that, the more we go through life failing to acknowledge and honor God through his created world, the more our hearts and minds become darkened, the dumber we become, the more knuckleheadedness sets in, and the less able we are to see God's clear order between the created and the creation. And we go, a creator, and we go and go and go and go in this cycle, and we become less and less and less and less able to see God in his creation, and it just kind of compounds itself until we're doing some really, really stupid and dangerous stuff. That's the problem of sin. The problem of sin is that apart from some, in, uh, some effort from the Lord, we are caught in a cycle from which there is no recovery. We will simply continue forever in the cycle of inverting creation over the creator. And we will worship and serve the gift rather than the giver. And every time we do that, it brings consequences. And those consequences make it harder for us to obey and so on and so forth. And we're caught up in a cycle of futility from which there is legitimately no escape unless God intervenes. And what the table is, is a celebration of this incredible idea that God took on flesh and walked in his creation 
right? In perfect obedience to the creator. So that Jesus came to earth, took on flesh, became man, and perfectly navigated this tension that we so often fail, well, that we constantly fail at. Jesus lived the same, in the same world, a same world full of stuff and potential pleasures and potential fears. I haven't even talked about fear. He navigated it. He did it. He was righteous throughout it. He obeyed the creator and worshiped and served the creator over the creation like through his whole life. And God did this amazingly miraculous thing. He created one human being who was perfectly right with the spiritual. Like, right? So, so you've got this, this human being who's also entirely right. It's divine. So that you've got this unique marriage of physical and spiritual in the person of Christ Jesus. He lives this perfect life as he walks through this created world, worshiping and serve the creator. And then he offers himself, his body, his created body, the thing we are the least likely to give up, the thing we want to protect the most, his life, which is this created thing, right? Because he became man. He offers it up as a payment for all of our sin. And the millions of times we have used this stuff for our own purposes against the express will of God. So that you can see how Jesus, as God and man, is uniquely qualified to deal with this particular problem, right? And you can see how the Lord's table is the pronouncement of grace upon people who sin in one area in particular, and that is people who sin in the area of not discerning the creation, the deeper meaning behind that creation, which is me and you. The Lord's table is for you to see the value of the gospel in redeeming you and saving you from this lifelong sin of inverting the created over the creator. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And it actually gets better. Because the amazing thing about God is he, he, the gospel always forgives you and starts fixing you. It actually starts changing the way you live. So this is the crazy thing. You come in here week after week and your job is to hold this, these two little things. And to just like try really hard to discern, right? Hold them and discern. This is more than what my fingers are touching. There's something deeper here. And that deeper thing is Christ. And that deeper thing is the gospel, right? This is what I'm doing. And I'm practicing this week after week after week. Well, what is, what is happening when you're doing that? Well, the gospel's teaching you how to live your life because that's all you have to do in life. It's like everything that you stub your toe into, everything you wander into, every good and bad thing you encounter, the job is the same. Every, every bit of it, the job's the same. And the, the, the job is, is to hold it in your hands and say, this is here because Christ is good. I don't, I don't necessarily know all the math in between the input and the output, but that's why this car exists. That's why my body exists. That's why this appetite exists. That's why this relationship does or does not exist. That's why my logic exists. That's why it all exists. It is here. It is 
created not for me to distort, not for me to turn into my own tool for my own divine coronation, not to, not to give me more control over this world and further reinforce the illusion that I am God, but this thing exists to show me more of Jesus. So the Lord's table is two things at the same time. It's the pronouncement of your freedom over the futility of sin and to train you in grace so that literally ounce by ounce, you learn how to do the thing you were created to do. Look at the creation and see Christ. That's pretty incredible. Let me pray for us.